Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of your word and the calling of your servant Paul uh, to be a witness to that word in very difficult situations. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, he did not uh, count the cost, uh, but simply was faithful to you. And Lord, in the same way that you would speak to us this morning, uh, that we might be faithful followers after you, uh, knowing uh, that you are all in all. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we only have, I think, uh, one or two more classes left before I finish the book of Acts, and then there was great rejoicing in heaven. Uh, and um, and uh, actually, we're going we're gonna to mix it up a little bit uh, over the summer. Uh, I'm actually, in August, I've decided I'm going to do a tough questions four-part series, and so uh, I'm going to ask the congregation to submit uh, questions. I won't say who it is that's submitting the question, so um, you can always email me if there's a burning question. Uh, a little bit like what we do with the Compromands, if you remember how we do that. But this is um, so you can ask me all the tough questions, and I'll take basically the top four and break them down over the four Sundays in uh, in August, and then uh, and then Rally uh, Day. We're actually going to begin a series for that term uh, on the 39 articles. Don't worry, it's not going to be 39 weeks. Uh, we've been able to conflate uh, several of them together, and some of them, like a Christian man's oath or a Christian man's goods, don't need a week. Uh, so we've uh, so that will just be um, probably uh, through the fall semester. So, uh, we are in Acts uh, chapter 20. Can you all hear me in the back? Robin, can you hear me? I- I've lost, my voice is out of training, and my eye is bothering me, and I'm just falling apart. Uh, Lauren, will sit when Lily, uh, our oldest, uh, goes bonkers uh, because she's upset about something, uh, Lauren will say, uh, Lily, we can't have, you have a come apart here. You've got you to pull it together. And uh, Lily submitted a prayer card um, in the plate one day, one Sunday that said, uh, "God, please don't let me come apart." Uh, and um, uh, so, uh, we're still waiting on an answer to that prayer. Uh, but, uh, but we're looking at um, the tail end of the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 26. I'm not going to read the full chapter to you, but I would encourage you to. But we need a lot of background information before we actually get to chapter 26, because where we left it off uh, was way back in chapter uh, 20, uh, uh, 22, um, or I'm sorry, chapter 24, uh, because last time we gathered, we talked about what it's like to hear a sermon and Felix and Drusilla's response uh, to the sermon was, go away, I'm alarmed, we'll talk about it later. And how uh, oftentimes that is the response of a lot of people when they hear a sermon that they're not willing to appropriate it as God's word to them in that moment. Uh, And so they put it off, and the way to do that is they simply try to avoid God. And in this case, uh, Felix uh, tried to avoid uh, Paul. Uh, Felix put Paul in jail for a number of years, and he gets uh, recalled uh, to Rome, and a guy named Festus uh, replaces him, and we see that in uh, verse uh, 27 in chapter 4. After two years had elapsed, that's how long Paul was in prison, Uh, Festus becomes the governor, and uh, desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix leaves him in prison and says, Festus, now he is your problem. And if you read forward uh, to 25 and 26, we see that Paul, uh, who is really having some trumped-up charges brought against him by the Jews in Jerusalem, 
uh, he appeals to Caesar. Uh, he wants uh, Caesar to hear his case. And there's this great line from Festus in chapter 25, verse 12. Then Festus, when he had confirmed with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. <clears throat> so what's happened is that his case is now being taken up uh, to the next uh, level. And uh, Agrippa, the king, decides to pay a visit to Festus. Now again, the political situation in Israel was very complicated because you had these Roman governors. Uh, the most famous one that we know of, right, is Pontius Pilate, right? We all remember him. And then we had Felix, and now we've got Festus. And uh, they have these Roman governors, but up until about 70 A.D., Caesar allowed a king to govern the people of Israel, although it was a f figurehead role. They really had no power in and of themselves. But Agrippa had taken the throne. He was Rome's chosen man to govern uh, the people of Israel, and yet he really was no king at all. And so Festus is the new governor, and so what does the king do? He goes to Caesarea Maritina there on the coast uh, and with his wife, uh, Bernice. These Bible names are so great. Uh, and uh, they go in order to pay a visit to Festus. And they come with great pomp and circumstance. And what ends up happening is uh, Festus realizes, you know what, now I've got a Jewish king. Uh, I'm going to bring Paul to lay his case before Agrippa because quite frankly, I have no charge to even send on to Caesar. I can send him on to Rome, but I don't know what to charge him with because I can't really find that he's done anything wrong. And so, uh, Paul is brought uh, before Agrippa and Festus. And we see that Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And so all of a sudden, Festus has given Agrippa the power to control the conversation. Festus is just listening in. He's refereeing it, but he wants Agrippa to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Paul that a whole bunch of people are listening in on. And so Paul begins his speech. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense, the posture of speaking in that day. And he begins to lay out in verses 2 through 5 his Jewish credentials. Here's who I am. You go to Jerusalem... Everybody knows who I am. I'm one of the best educated Pharisees that there were in Jerusalem. In fact, I was the ringleader that helped persecute the church. And so go ask anybody that, that I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he begins to lay out his credentials in verses 2 through 5, that in Jerusalem my life is known by all the Jews. They have, been known, they have known for a long time, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And so he's saying, look, I'm not on trial for really uh, any matter that ought to upset the Jewish people. And in fact, that's what Festus's problem is, is that he sees this as a purely religious matter. And it doesn't really enter into the realm of politics. And so that's why in verses 6 and 7, Paul continues to talk about this is why, I, why I'm on trial. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. 
as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews. I'm on trial because of my belief, not just in the resurrection of the dead, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ over death and the grave. And what he's saying is that what's ironic about this situation is that the people who are most vociferous in their opposition are the ones who ought to most readily cling to the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's the Jews. And yet, they're the ones who are opposing me in this matter. In fact, he starts talking about temple worship, talking about the Old Testament, that everything that happens at the temple and everything that God talks about in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. All of it. You just look at what the temple worship is is about, that you have, especially on the Day of Atonement, uh, where you have uh, uh, the high priest who sacrifices uh, there and takes the blood from the sacrifice and goes into the Holy of Holies, into the tabernacle of God, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and they tie a rope around his leg in case he dies, because ain't nobody going in there. And uh, the priest goes in, uh, and he sprinkles blood on... Uh, the mercy seat, and then they pray that the sins of Israel uh, would be transferred to a goat who set out into the wilderness, where we get the term scapegoat uh, from, and uh, this uh, representing that their sins are as far as the east is uh, from the west. Well, go and read the book of Hebrews, which lays out uh, that Christ is in all of that stuff, right? Not only is Christ our great high priest who goes in and sprinkles the blood of the covenant on the mercy seat of God, uh, he himself is the sacrifice, right? He's both the, he's both the priest uh, and the victim uh, in that. Uh, he is the scapegoat. Uh, he is the one that has been forsaken upon whom all the sins of the world was laid. And so this is where Paul is saying, you know, how are you missing this? I mean, your, your whole lives are caught up in things that are signs that point to the Lord Jesus himself. And so it might make sense for uh, folks who are Gentile uh, to not understand. Uh, because at least the Jews had a right understanding of, and concept uh, and had the framework to understand who God was. I mean, you remember Paul when he was in Athens and he went to Mars Hill. Uh, remember what he preached on? He saw a temple to who? The unknown God. That's unheard of uh, in, amongst the people of Israel. Uh, them, to them, God uh, was known. Uh, he was personal. Uh, and uh, there was no hedging the bets of, well, there were points in time when they set up stuff that they shouldn't have set up, but God tended to deal with that. Uh, but still, they understood uh, who God was uh, because of God's word and because of their temple rituals. And so, it's distressing to Paul that he's on trial for an issue that above all people the Jews should understand. And it's for that that he's on trial. And the further irony in verse 8, why is it that thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He goes back to the general idea of resurrection because remember the Pharisees They believed in the resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees didn't. And so the Pharisees of all people should understand that this is a reality, that there is a resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, they were thinking in terms of a general resurrection, but we know that Christ's resurrection from the dead are the first fruits. 
of those who believe in Him, that one day we will be raised like Him and we will be made like Him. But the Jews, especially the Pharisees, rejected the message of the gospel. Even though they believed in the resurrection, they couldn't and wouldn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That was, that's a blanket statement uh, because there were those in Jerusalem. We heard this morning in our reading from Acts chapter 2 that 3,000, uh, and those were folks from all over uh, the Jewish world uh, that came to know uh, the Lord Jesus. Uh, but uh, there was uh, great opposition uh, there in Jerusalem. In fact, to the point that what they wanted was Paul not to simply to go on trial. They just wanted him dead. Uh, they wanted him dead because this... This message uh, was uh, a menace. And they didn't like the tact the Sanhedrin, who was the governing council for the Jews uh, there in uh, that area, they didn't like what they had set out, the policy they had set forth. And that was the Gamaliel test. Remember when Peter stood before the Sanhedrin and Gamaliel said, look, if this isn't of God, it's going to peter out. It'll just, it'll go away. But if it is of God, there's nothing that we can do to stop it. Now, the funny thing is, is that the more God works, the more active He becomes, the more effective we see the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. The response of those in opposition is what? To relent? To double down on control. To try to take more control over the situation. And of course, the more control they try to take over the situation, the more they lose their grip and the more out of control things seem to be. And we're no different uh, in our own lives. I'm sure that you have in your own lives little indicators uh, that I know that in my own life when I feel that things are, are getting out of control, I try to find a task that I know I can control and I never finish it. You know, for me, it's, there's a room in the house that I've been working on for the past several weeks, which means I'm getting nothing done. I don't know if you're like me. I'm the guy who goes to organize the storage room and starts opening up boxes and starts reminiscing when I'm flipping through the photos. And I'm like, look what I found. I found this. You know, it's of no use to me. But when I was eight, it was everything. And, uh, and, and so I get to the end of it and I realize I don't even have control over the things that I want. That's why, especially in ministry, uh, ministers, they should like this. Uh, they should like mowing grass or, or, or doing some sort of, like a puzzle, uh, because it's one of the few things in life where you actually can put forth effort into it and you can look back and say, finished product until it happens again, right? Until the grass needs mowing again. But it makes, it makes you feel needed. It makes you feel, feel wanted. And the message of the gospel is that you don't have uh, any control. Robin Anderson, what was the wonderful quote you had for me about original sin this morning? Well, it's not polite to say it was original form, but it was said to somebody, give you a chainsaw and you just go nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Giving a man a chainsaw will show you original sin. Yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> And I mean, for those of you that, like, I don't know about, but men love chainsaws. Like, men get a chainsaw and it's like, it's on. Like, I mean, it just, it makes you feel manly. It makes you feel accomplished. You can't wait for people to ask, what'd you do the other day? I got a chainsaw out. <laughs> I mean, I was chopping down trees I didn't need to chop down. I'm just a man. And, I mean, it really is. It, it, it shows you uh, the direction and the intent uh, of the human heart. I don't know what the, the, the female equivalent of that is. Maybe some of y'all like, Miriam, I feel like you could really handle a chainsaw. Um, Two of them, yeah, but whatever, uh, one for each hand. Wh whatever, uh, whatever it is, 
uh, we, the Pharisees are wrong, but we're wrong too, in that in our own lives, all we're trying to do is to seek control. When Christianity is all about relinquishing, relinquishing control, there's a great line from a high cue that Jack Kerouac wrote, and it was this, uh, whatever it is, I quit. <laughs> whatever it is, I quit. And, and that's, that's the message of the gospel, that you can actually rest in the knowledge that God uh, is in control. But of course, the message of the Pharisees, of all parties, is that it's all about control. Right? Here's how you order your life. It wasn't just the Torah, it just wasn't the law, but the implications of the law. And layer and layer had been laid onto the law so much that it had lost its original purpose. And then... Paul comes amongst the other disciples and begins to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and it stands in opposition and Paul feels it mightily. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Of all people, I'm aware of how they feel. I get it. I understand their opposition. And so then he turns from his past life to his conversion. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. Remember, I used to, I was an official undercover guy. I was the real deal. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." <clears throat> Excuse me. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. Remember, he's just talking. I and mean, you can imagine how intense this conversation is where he and Agrippa are going eye to eye, but everyone else is looking in. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, who knows what it means to kick against the goads? Or to kick against the pricks? Well, you don't count. You're a seminary student. Uh, yeah, of course, Robin, Robin, I believe it. Uh, Robin in a chainsaw. Um, well, kicking against the ghosts was a phrase that was often used in the Mediterranean world, and anybody in Paul's day would have understood it because it's an agricultural term, and it would be when you had oxen plowing. Uh, someone would walk alongside, and they have a long stick with a piece of iron on it, and that was the goad, right? So if they were getting offline, the person would p basically poke them uh, with it, and so that's why... We, and I, I'm sure that we've all said at some point to goad somebody on. It means to push, to encourage. Uh, but the problem with trying to kick against the goads is that every once in a while, an ox would start kicking at it because who likes to be poked? Nobody likes to be poked. Uh, but the problem is that the more the ox would rebel, the more he would suffer. Because at first he'd get a little poke, but then he'd act out, and then what would happen? He'd really get a poke. And so what God is saying to Paul, what the Lord Jesus is saying to Paul, is that it's hard for you to kick the, against the goads, which means the more you rebel, the harder it's going to be on you. This is what we might call God's effectual calling on the life of a believer, that God always finishes what he starts. And so there was no place that Paul could run 
and outrun God. It just wasn't going to happen. God was going to overtake him. And the more he rebelled, the more God, the presence of God that he would feel until finally he completely capitulates and it does no good <clears throat> to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have you have seen me into those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision." He begins to respond to God's call on his life. So he's told his testimony, he's told about his conversion, and now he's saying, this is what my life looked like after I encountered the Lord Jesus when he got a hold of me on the road to Damascus. He doesn't mull over the event. He doesn't think, you know, I'm going to put this away and I'm going to think about it for a while. He immediately responds. He immediately acts. He hears the call of God on his life and he gets up and he goes. A very vivid image of this would be the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. Give me a minute. Kind of like it in here. Like the rest. No, I'll be out in a minute. No, what does Lazarus do? Comes out. He comes out. Uh, in the same way uh, that we are, are called out. Now, let me say that just because God's calling is effectual, it doesn't undermine our own human responsibility. There are many people that I know that want to wait until the 12th hour to make a decision for the Lord Jesus. It was very prevalent, especially in the medieval church, that many people would actually hold off on being baptized until they were dying uh, because they thought that if they were baptized and then died immediately, they would go straight to heaven. The worst thing would be to be baptized and then to live a sinful life and then to die, right? Now, of course, that's an unbiblical mindset, an unbiblical idea of baptism, much less salvation. Uh, but there are many still today uh, who think that way. But the testimony of Scripture is that there are those who wait to the 12th hour, uh, but they often die at the 11th. Remember the man who said, you know, I've got all this money, I'm going to build my barns. And Jesus says, you fool, for tonight uh, the Lord is going to demand uh, your life from you. Uh, you don't know uh, how many days uh, you have uh, in your life. And so when God calls on you, uh, when salvation is held out to you, uh, choose this day whom you will serve. Make that decision now. This is especially hard in an area of cultural Christianity. Uh, often I will hear people or experience people say, well, you know what, uh, I'm going to wait to be married and have a family, uh, and then uh, I'm going to come to church. Uh, I think that probably the greatest enemy of Christianity, of living faith in Jesus Christ, is religion. Uh, this idea of religious structure and religious institution that actually robs God of His glory and obscures the gospel. And what I mean by, this, by that is this, that there are many uh, who see, uh, and even in our language, and I, I'm lost as to how to really put new language to it, but even how we talk about 
uh, our church membership, or even how we talk about the church. We often say, I'm going to church, which means you're going to a certain building. But the church is who? The church is us, right? The church is, is people. It's the gathering of God's people. Uh, but even that, uh, we talk about being a member of a church. Like, I'm a member of Rotary, uh, or I'm a member of a club. Uh, it's strange language and terminology that we use, which is why I think that some people get the impression uh, that being a part of a church is much like being a member of a club. Uh, little do they know, oftentimes, that you're not signing up to be the member of a club, uh, you're signing up to be a member of the crew of a battleship. And that's really what you're doing. Uh, you're joining uh, the body and becoming part of Christ's church uh, militant. Uh, which we used to pray for, but that language is too strong now for us to be able to stomach. Uh, but I like the idea of the church militant and the church triumphant uh, paired side by side. Uh, but all that to say that there are many people uh, who will claim faith, but for them it is just a cultural consideration. They'll say, I go to such and such a church, and yet actually know nothing of the Lord Jesus himself. And this is very much the case in Paul's day, and who he may even be speaking to in King Agrippa, that there's somebody who says, and even in our reading from Acts today, from Acts chapter 2, what kind of people are gathered from all over the world in Jerusalem? Devout men from every nation. Not heathens, not people who are far off, but people of religious devotion and yet are lost. And so Peter stands up amongst them and delivers this amazing sermon in the power of the Holy Spirit so that of those devout... Those people who would say, I'm a member, 3,000 of them actually come to a living and vibrant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the faith becomes something that is theirs. They appropriate it. It's not simply something that is cultural. When God intervenes in Paul's life, we see in verse 20, he responds to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ and he sets to work in Damascus. He doesn't mess around, but declared to those first in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now there's a word that has been completely lost in our culture today, and that is the word repentance. It's even been lost in our church vocabulary. What does it mean to be, repent, to be repentant? Uh, to repent. Uh, to show repentance. Most people will say, well, it means to feel that you're sorry. Well, that's, that's part of it. Uh, but I don't know about you. Every time I see a politician get uh, on the television to apologize for something, they say something like, I'm sorry if I hurt anybody. That's a terrible apology. I mean, those are like the apologies we had when my brothers and I would grow up and my mother would say, Andrew, apologize to your brothers. And I would say, I'm so sorry that you don't have a sense of humor. Um, it's ridiculous. It's, it's no apology uh, at all. In fact, uh, what we need and what the Greek is here is the metanoia, that we, it means to have a change of mind, but more than that, it's to have a change of heart. It's a completely different reorientation, that it's not just that you're upset over the consequences of your sin, but you're upset over sin itself. The very act has grieved you and your heart cries out uh, to be different. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And it requires the intervention of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives to actually reorient us, 
to take us, to point us away from the direction we're going and to shift into a direction that is toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't do that in our own power. I mean, I've tried uh, all kinds of things uh, with willpower. Uh, I've, you know, the thing about weight is it really does creep up on you, doesn't it? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, it's uh, you just sort of add pounds. And I say this all the time, but it really is, you know, we just got back off of a really wonderful vacation with the family. And I look at myself and I think, ooh, you know, I'm supposed to have my beach bod at this point. And, uh, and I have gone in the opposite direction. I've gone in the, Now, I know that in five years' time, I'll look back at that photo that I said, uh, to and say, I'd kill to look like that again. I know that that's going to happen. Uh, but in the same vein, uh, it, you know, that's just it, is that things have a way of creeping up uh, in our lives, and, uh, and it starts very subtly and with just a little bit, uh, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves mired and entangled, and normally our first response is to get the chainsaw out. All right, let's see if we can get some control over this. But Paul says, no, that repentance, which is absolutely necessary, so when we actually talk about the gospel, uh, before we can believe, uh, there's repentance, that God has intervened in our lives, that actually uh, we're handing over the throne of our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? When He comes into our life, that's what it is. It's not just Jesus, you know, those things that say, God is my co-pilot. God is not our co-pilot. He's our pilot we're in the back. We're in the back, and praise God for that. Uh, I had a friend who's in ministry, and he wanted to speak uh, to a guy that I know who, um, uh, who's a high finance guy in England who sits, uh, incidentally, in the House of Lords. And so my friend said, well, really, he's a believer, and I'd really love to talk to him about some things. And so I called up my friend Brian and I, I said, Brian, would you be willing to meet this guy? I was like, absolutely. So uh, my friend Brian called my friend Tim and said, well, hey, I, Andrew told me about you. I'd love to get together for lunch. And he said, oh, that would be great. Where would you like to go for lunch? He said, well, why don't you meet me at, at, at Westminster, and I'll take you to lunch in the dining room of the House of Lords. Now, this is kind of crazy. And so my friend Tim showed up and at the door, and uh, he had his clerical collar on for added measure, and uh, the guard asked him his name, and he actually gave him a salute uh, with the collar on, and, and in he went, and he said, you'll find Lord Griffiths down there on the right. You go through the corridor, and you'll find him there. And they had a, a nice lunch, and then uh, Brian said, well, why don't I take you into the, the chamber? And my friend was amazed at how small it was. Uh, but while he was there, there's this, up on this very high platform is the throne that Queen Elizabeth sits on when she addresses Parliament. Right, that's her throne. And my friend Tim said to Brian, he said, he said, would you do me a favor? My parish would love it if you would take a picture of me sitting up there on the throne. And Brian was mortified by it. Now, my friend Tim was just joking, but it was not a funny joke. Uh, I mean, can you imagine the gall to do something like that? And yet we do it with Jesus all the time. You know, if, if someone walked in on a sitting on Elizabeth's throne, we would get down immediately. Oh, oh, it's, it, it, I was just joking around. And yet, how ready are we to jump onto the thrones of our lives and reluctantly hand them over to, the Jesus, to Jesus Christ when it's His throne? Our hearts belong to Him. Our name's on the list, and we, we come into His presence, but, but He sits on the throne of our lives and not us. And so repentance is abs absolutely key uh, to the Christian life. And as Martin Luther said, the Christian life is all repentance. 
Uh, we find ourselves time and time again having to turn away uh, from that in our life this dishonors the Lord Jesus and we're grieved over it not simply because of the consequences uh, but that we actually grieve over sin. St. Augustine once said that, uh, that um, I'm now as a believer less afraid of burning than I am of sinning. And so many are afraid of sin because of burning rather than the sin itself. And so... Paul here is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's preaching and he sets to work here as well. This is not about him. He tells Festus and Agrippa and anyone with an earshot how it is that they can be reconciled to God, to repent and turn to God as a result of the verses that we just read. Well, let's read them again. Well, this is following on that. To this day, I I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I've never deviated from God's word by be, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so here he's beginning to drive home his point that he's not so much again trying to save his own hide, but he's witnessing directly to Agrippa as well as to anyone else who would listen. Now, what I will say is that, but before Paul could continue, what happens in verse 24? And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus says with a loud voice, because he thinks, okay, we're getting carried away now, because now we've moved from personal testimony to gospel implication. And that's when it's put on us that we start to get squirrely. So Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. So even with the distraction by Festus, who is his target? He never takes his eyes off Agrippa. It's to he whom he's pointing to. But Festus says, as a genius might also get lost in their work as to speak such nonsense to the rest of the world, so Paul has been reduced to a religious fanatic that is out of touch with reality. But Paul responds, I've never been saner. In fact, before Christ, I was in the dark, and it was there that I was out of my mind. It wasn't until I came to know the Lord Jesus that my eyes were open to reality. Those outside of Christ are the ones living in a dream world. For to be in Christ is to see things as they really are. To see things in light and not in darkness. To see the truth. And Paul won't allow himself to be distracted by Festus. And how easily are we distracted in our own witness? It may not be a person that distracts us, but a feeling, a circumstance, our own propensity to procrastinate. I've even had the feeling and experience 
of having someone ask me point blank about Jesus. And I really don't want to answer them because I don't want to be inconvenienced. How shameful that my own desires will often distract me from the task that is at hand, even when it's an engraved invitation. Whatever it is that distracts us, most of us lack the tenacity that Paul demonstrates here with Agrippa. Uh, when I read this, I can't help but think of the scene, and actually the movie does a very good job of capturing it, uh, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. In J.R. Tolkien's final book, The Return of the King, there's a scene in which, uh, Gan- nerd alert, uh, there's a scene in which Gandalf, uh, who is now Gandalf the White, he's this great and powerful wizard, visits Theoden, the king of Rohan. And Theoden is under the spell of an evil wizard, Uh, He's possessed uh, by demons. And Gandalf knows this, and so he reveals himself for who he is, and he begins to approach Theoden, trying to drive out this evil demonic force. Meanwhile, his companions are fighting this mini-battle around him with swords and clubs, but never does Gandalf take his eyes off of Theoden. Never does he stop to think about what's going on around him. He simply sets his eyes on Theoden, and he casts out the demonic activity. He walks boldly and with purpose toward the king, not taking any notice of what goes on around him, for that was his task. The fighting around him belonged to others. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul doesn't have the expectation that God would work In fact, that's why he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He's wearing chains. He's bound in shackles as he proclaims the gospel to Agrippa and Festus and all those around him. But then the king rises and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, you know, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So why did Paul appeal to Caesar? For this. For this, he appealed to Caesar. Not counting his own life as something worthy to be saved, but counting it as all loss in the light and knowledge of the glorious gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, Paul will set sail for Rome, and of course he would uh, preach in Rome. Uh, He would write many of his uh, pastoral epistles uh, from his prison cell in Rome, and of course he would die uh, in Rome. And next week uh, I'm going to talk about leadership in the storm as Paul sets forward uh, going off to Rome, uh, but with a special emphasis talking about our visioning process uh, here at the Advent. Uh, and so we're not going to get away from our Bible study, uh, but we are go- I'm going to use the visioning process as an illustration uh, of our Bible study. Questions, comments, concerns?
You're, you were talking about repentance earlier, and um, in church today, I guess it was De- Deborah read uh, the Declaration of Forgiveness, and this really struck me. He pardoneth and absolveth all those who truly repent and unfailingly believe his holy gospel. And I was thinking, when I heard those words, I was like, do I truly repent? Do I really feel bad, you know? And then the next sentence says, wherefore, let us beseech him to grant us true repentance. And it just hit me that, it, like, our own repentance doesn't even come from us. Right. Have to oh, ask the dead, the we, dead speaketh. Yeah. <laughs> and then something you said in your sermon about the Gospels for all just got me choked up about a prideful something I had done this morning. And it was just, I had to ask God to give me that repentance for a light to be shown, you know, shined on it. What did you do? I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Um, It's between me and him. Yes. So, uh, Sarah, God bless you. Uh, The Holy Spirit's at work in this place. Uh, Yes, that was was Cranmer's point. It is a funny little thing, and I actually wrote an entire Anglican Digest article a couple, it was the last issue, I think, um, and um, on that very issue uh, that, I mean, that he absolves all those who truly repent, uh, wherefore let us grant, uh, and, and the reason, that's why we, we use that language here at the Advent, is because that, that's it's true to life. Uh, you know, I, I need God to instill in me uh, His Holy Spirit so that I might truly repent, uh, because from a, apart from Him, it, it isn't happening. And so repentance is necessary forgiveness, but that is something that God gives us. It's not something that we simply conjure up in our own strength. You touched on it about being in prison. It, sometimes the prison or the wilderness uh, gives us time to reflect, and it gave him time to write all those letters to the churches he had been a part of. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I think that that is um, <clears throat> that's a very good point. Um, I think that one of the things that, I mean, maybe what the main thing... Um, that I carried away uh, from our time in the Bahamas. I know this sounds ridiculous. Anytime, it's one of those things like you can't say it that way. Um, uh, but I'll be, I, I mean, it was the first time in a long time that I actually got away and was free of distractions. I really didn't have to think. There were no looming pressures. There were no looming issues. And I actually was able to pray and to think uh, and to be relieved of several burdens and... Um, I don't know how else to describe it except God showed up. I mean, I really met with God, and it wasn't the four daiquiris I had. Um, <laughs> but but that, that God really showed up, and, and I think it's not that he doesn't show up in other times, but I wonder if it's the throne issue. You know, we've got our agenda, and, you know, Paul Walker told me once, hey, Andrew, just when you think that the world can't revolve without you, take a nap. See what happens. It, it keeps turning. But I do think that it's really important, David, and that's a very good point, that, that we do need that time to, to get perspective. And I know that we all live busy lives, and I don't think that the Lord is saying that we need to lay all that down, but I do think that the point needs to be made that we need time uh, with the Lord Jesus himself, and we need to be relieved of those burdens. And sometimes it does take extreme measures to kind of block out that time uh, and and to really listen to what God would say to us. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.